Well, good morning. Okay, let's get started with a word of prayer, if we could. Our Father, we are so grateful to be able to come together as the body of Christ this morning. We thank you for your scriptures and what you've been teaching us. Lord, I pray that you would direct our conversation this morning, that you would uh, illumine your word, that we might understand it, Lord, that we might trust it, that we might believe it. Lord, in all these things, may you be glorified and uplifted, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is week number 10 in our discussion about eschatology, and for the last three weeks, we've been over in Joshua, just kind of walking through it chapter by chapter, so we could get the full uh, explanation of what Joshua wrote. And what I'd like to do this morning is go back and cover a couple of things and then finish the last two chapters of Joshua. Some very, very significant passages within these um, things we're going to look at this morning. The first is over in Deuteronomy 31. And this is, if you remember, just before Moses dies, that God summoned Moses and Joshua to come into the tent of meeting And he had some things he wanted to tell them. And down in verse, um, chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, verse 16, the Lord speaking to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which you are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? So God speaking to Moses, but Joshua right there with him hearing this, Knowing that Moses is about to die, Joshua has to be just kind of overcome with the fact that these people were going to forsake God. Now, as we get to the end of Joshua, Joshua never saw this during his life. The generation that was Joshua's generation were faithful. They obeyed God. They took part of the land. They did everything almost according to what God had directed them to do. And for that, God blesses them and allows them to take a good portion of the land. So why Joshua had to be a little concerned when he heard God make this prediction, but when he gets to the end of his life, because he's not seen it, he knows it's yet future. And so we'll see him today begin to warn those people whom he's going to leave because he's dying Um, about this very same issue. So just keep that in your mind. And then uh, we looked at a difficult passage uh, at the end of last week. So I want to go back there. It's over in Joshua chapter 11. And you have to admit, as you go through Joshua, there are some things that you have to deal with that can be troublesome until you you look in detail of what is said there. So at the end of chapter 11, 
Verse 23, the very last verse of the chapter. So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by the tribes. Thus the land was at rest from war. Okay, so that sounds like they took all of the promised land and it all got divided up and that they now live in the land and it's free from any external wars because everybody was so terrified of the Israelites because every time they went up against someone, they not only defeated them, they killed every one of them. That includes the children, um, the babies, the mothers, the fathers, everybody was just slaughtered. And that was their typical pattern, that they didn't just defeat people and drive them out of the land, they annihilated them. And so everybody around them is terrified of them, which is why they're at peace. And this sounds like they've taken the entire land, but when you look at that in context of the next, um, I think it goes all the way to chapter, it's like, 22 or so. Um, If you look at it in context of that, the next two chapters define what the whole land means. And then after that, the give it as an inheritance is defined by the chapters from 15 through 21. And so this, the rest of the book makes a commentary on what this means. And when he says that they took the whole land, what it's talking about is, you, you remember at the end of chapter 13, that he, they, chapter 13 enumerates these kings that Joshua defeated, and then the very last verse says, in all, 31 kings. Now those 31 kings did not possess all of the land that God had promised to the patriarchs. They possess the central part of it. And you can look at the details of, of where they were at and you can see that very clearly. So not only that, that these kings didn't possess it all, chapter 13 makes it explicit that they did not take all the land because in verse 2, he, the, the scripture reads, This is the land that remains all the regions. And then it goes through and for six verses lists all the lands that they had not yet taken. The end of verse 1 there, God speaking to to Joshua, says, You are old and advanced in years and very much of the land remains to be possessed. So it's very clear that even though chapter 11 says he's taken all the land, what it means is that he's taken all the land of these 31 kings, not that he's taken all the land that was promised to the patriarchs. Because here's God saying there's still very much of the land to be possessed. And then he enumerates what land has not yet been taken. So that defines what is meant by the whole land in, back in chapter 11 and verse 23. And then he says that not only that he had taken the whole land, but he gave it as an inheritance 
to the Israel, to Israel. Now you'll remember that as we went through this, this goes on for many chapters. It goes all the way through um, chapter 21. And what those chapters are, 15 through 21, is a definition and a dividing of the land among the tribes of Israel. It gives every border, gives in explicit detail what was given to them. But then repeatedly, as those divisions are being set up, I mean, we saw this in chapter 15, we saw it in chapter 16, we saw it in chapter 17, that there were areas of that land that they had not taken and they could not possess. And we could go through and look at that again. I mean, it's in chapter 15, verse 63. Chapter, and let's just look at a couple of these. So you can see this again. And we'll put, you know, this is the territory that went to Ephraim. No, this is uh, Judah. In 1563, now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem till this day. Till what day? To the day this book was written. And this is Joshua who's writing this book, I believe. And so, I mean, they didn't even take Jerusalem, the place that we think is the central part of the kingdom, the, the capital city of Israel. They did not possess it during Joshua's days. The Jebusites lived there. And then you look over at chapter 16 and verse 10. And this is the land given to Ephraim. And it says, but they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. So they did make them laborers, but they did not drive them out of the land. The Canaanites are still there. And then down in chapter 17, verse 11 through 12, and this is the land given to Manasseh in Issachar. And in Asher, Manasseh and Bethany, its towns, and Eblim and its towns, the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, and the inhabitants of Tanakh and its towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns, the third in Napheth. So, this, but the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in these lands. So even the lands that are explicitly given to them, we have the scripture saying they didn't take it all. They did not possess it all. They couldn't take it because the Canaanites or the Jebusites or whoever are there won't leave. And they can't drive them out. So explicitly given multiple times, we get a definition of what it means to give it as an inheritance. It means it's been defined the borders have been marked out. It's been given to the people, but they haven't taken possession of it. David, isn't, uh, I think you touched on this a few weeks ago, but Joshua 13 is really, isn't that a key passage that helps us see? You, you see in verse 1 that Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, right. You are old and advanced, and there remains yet very much land to possess. Right. right. What I find most clarifying here is he labels all that land. Look at verse 6. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon, 
whatever that word is, even all the Sidonians. And then he says this, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Yeah, and we'll see. That's God. And, and you remember that, that um, God mainly used the Israelites' hands to drive the people out of the land, and that meant kill them all. That's the main way. But there were times when God supernaturally hailed down stones from heaven to kill those that, that Israel couldn't catch up with. And a matter of fact, the Scripture says in that particular passage that God killed more of them than the Israelites did. So God himself is the one. You, and you'll remember, I think, that when Joshua first got in the land, that he met the captain of the hosts of God. That's Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. Because he begins to use uh, personal pronouns and the name of God interchangeably as he talks to Joshua. So Jesus Christ pre-incarnate met Joshua once they got into the promised land and said, I will go before you and drive them out. So there's no question here. This is what God had planned. This is what God is doing. They're obeying God as they take all this land, but they didn't take it all. And that's a major point that we want to look at. Now, we keep going, and we get to Joshua 21, and you have even a more difficult passage this is what we looked at right at the end of last week. 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give it to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of their enemies stood before them. And the Lord gave their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. So what do you do with that passage? And again, the following chapters define what is meant in this passage. Does not mean that they had taken every single part of the land and that they possessed it and that God had fulfilled all the promises He ever promised. What it means is up until this point in time, God had been faithful to do everything that He had promised. That nothing that He promised... We could not point to a single passage in all that we've looked at, all the way back to Genesis. We could not point to a single passage where God has not done what He said He would do. Not a single time could we say, oh, there's God did not do what He promised them to do. Doesn't mean He's done everything that He promised, but up until this point, He's been faithful, has done every single thing. Not one of the promises that He's given have failed. And never will it be true that any of the promises of God. But at this point, when Joshua is writing, you could, he can look back and say, God has been faithful. Everything He promised me, He has done. He has been faithful to do it. And we do have rest because everybody is terrified to attack us because if they did, they know we would annihilate them. So they do have rest. The land has been divided. Does not mean they possess it all. What this 
what these verses say is exactly true. That nobody was able to stand up to them. That God had been faithful and all the land has been divided. Doesn't mean they possess it. And you remember the words that are used to talk about the division of the land are apportioned, not possess. So they have marked out all the borders and the, and the tribes do know what they are going to eventually have. But you also remember the promise of God back in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 7 where he said, I will drive them out of the land, but it won't all happen at once. I'll do it a little by little. So God never intended to immediately drive all the people out of the land. Matter of fact, we'll see that explicitly in today's passage, that God had a plan and he was still working his plan and he had been absolutely faithful. None of his promises had failed, but they don't possess all the land. And that will be explicitly clear in what we look at this morning. Look over in chapter 23. Right. And you see the Lord's high priest prayer where he says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Right. Uh, and, and, and he goes on, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now the Father glorified What you see in that is, is us. Well, well, Jesus Christ saying, I've accomplished the work before he goes to the cross. That's right. Our redemption. Well, in that John 17 prayer, Christ even prays for us today, right. the church today. Right. And, and he sees all things all, all completely over all the time, and he speaks from that like he's doing in Joshua and Absolutely, because God is not bound by time like we are. And there is no doubt in God's mind that he will accomplish everything that he had promised. So he speaks of it as already having been accomplished, even timeline-wise, before it's accomplished. Because that's the way he sees it. it there, yeah, and there's no doubt that he's not going to do this. And that's the whole point of why we're looking at Joshua. Now, Joshua 23. I want, I want to show you some things in here. Um, you, know, you just start reading it. Now, it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old and advanced in years. And that's the same statement that was made previously when Joshua was somewhere between probably 85 and 95 years old. Now he's 110. So we're 15 to 25 years in the future from when that, the previous chapters happened, when they divided all the land. So now we're, and, and they've taken no more land because this, nothing is spoken in Joshua about taking any more land. They've been at rest for 15 to 25 years Matter of fact, if we went back and looked at it, Joshua asked them, why aren't you taking any more land? And they don't give an answer. There's no answer given. They divide the land. 
and then but they don't take any more of the land now so we're we're at the end of Joshua's life we're 15 to 25 years further out than we were in the previous chapter okay so we a lot of time has passed but nothing has changed and then we have God now, or Joshua beginning to speak to the people. And if you, I, I want to go through this pretty quick because I want to get through it. Um, and remember that Joshua was in the tent with Moses when God said, these people will rebel, they'll forsake me, they'll serve foreign gods that I'll hide my face from them, my anger will be kindled against them. That's still in Joshua's mind because he speaks to it in this passage. So Joshua's never forgot what God said in the tent of meeting. Not, not that he could, right? I mean, you're talking to God. And it's the only time, it was the first time when Joshua had a conversation with God, when God commissioned him and said that these people are going to fail me. And, and, and Joshua's looking back now over his whole life. They've been in the promised land some, what was it, seven years of war and now 15 to 25 years. So somewhere between 22 and 32 years, they've been in the promised land. He looks back and says, these people have not gone after the strange gods to this point, And they had not. This was a faithful generation. So Joshua on his deathbed has this perspective that this is still going to happen in the future. Because God told him it was going to happen. So he first gives them, look in verse 4 and 5. Then the Lord your God, he will thrust them out before you and drive them from before you. And you will possess the land just as the Lord your God has promised you. Now what does that tell you immediately? They don't have all the land. Right? Because this is future tense. God will drive them out of the land. Not that he has but he will. So this is Joshua passing to the next generation the promises that Moses had passed to him. That God will be faithful and will drive them out of the land. But look at the next verse. Be very firm. Verse 6. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside to it to the right or to the left. So he's saying you've got to be faithful. You've got to continue to do what we've been doing all them these years. Now, in verses 6 through 11, so the next, after 6, the next four verses, you see, beginning in verse 7, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down for them. And this goes on for another four or five verses, where he says, don't do these things that God has told me you are going to do. So this is in Joshua's mind as he's on his deathbed. And he's trying to warn them not to do these things. Now, in verses 12 and 13, he tells them what is going to happen if they are not faithful. He says, For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out. So there's where God will give up on them. 
He will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and trap you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Here's Joshua pleading with them to be faithful and warning them what's going to happen, the very same thing God told him in the tent of meeting, of what would happen to them. So you see on his deathbed, this is in his mind. Because it hasn't happened, but he knows it's going to happen. You, you look on down in verse 14, he says, Now behold, I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and all your souls that not one word of the good works which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. That's that perspective that I was talking about. As Joshua writes and he says, we've taken all the land, not a single promise of God has failed. That is true at this point. When he's writing this, when he's on his deathbed, that not a single thing that God promised has failed and the people have not failed. Yet. Yeah. He goes to the, he goes somewhere out into the way beyond this, but still not there yet, and says the exact same thing. Yeah, that the I mean, this is where the whole earth is headed. Okay, so the last two verses of that chapter, verse fifteen and sixteen, it shall come about that just as all your good works which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you. So the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off of this good land which the Lord your God has given you when you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord has given you. And you got, if you're the people... And you're standing around Joshua and all this success has happened. What are you, you've got to be going, Joshua, you've got to be kidding me. Right? We're going to be faithful. We're going to do what God has commanded us to do. We're going to continue to cling to God. And they say that for 13 verses. That we will be faithful. And, and let's look at it. Let's find it here. Because... Um, what, what Joshua does is he recounts all the way back to Abraham in just a few verses all the way up into the present day. He says, here's how faithful God's been for these hundreds of years. And, and so he, he puts that in front of them and tells them how God drove the people out. And then look in verse 16. He, he challenges them to serve God, to be faithful, to serve God. And um, you can see that in verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, I always thought that passage was at the beginning of Joshua. But it's not. It's at the very end when Joshua is about to die. That he says, serve the Lord. And you have to choose who you're going to serve. And then look at what the people answer in verse 16. The people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. He's like, sign me up. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm not going to go serve other gods. And they all, all the people together say this. And then they say that who they're not going to serve. And that's all these other gods. Um, But... Look on down, because they say it again. Oh, in verse 24. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey his voice. And then Joshua makes a covenant and builds an altar and writes us on a stone, verse 26. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak, which was by the sanctuary of the Lord, Joshua said to to the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words which the Lord, which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. So every time you see this stone, remember what you said today. That's why he builds these stones. And then Joshua dismisses all the people, and Joshua dies. And someone else writes the last four or five verses of the book that says, and it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. So Joshua dies in the very last verse. The guy who's been helping Joshua when they apportioned the land, when they led the people, is a man named Eleazar. And Eleazar was the high priest that served along with Joshua. And then the last verse of the book says, And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gabeah of Peneus, his son, which was given to him in the hill country of Ephraim. And the previous verse says that they buried Joshua in the land that he received as an inheritance. So these two great leaders are gone. Okay? And, and so now the people are like, well, what do we do now? Because these great leaders are gone and they've been given this commission that God will still continue to drive the people out. And the book of Joshua is done and they do not possess all the land. Because the last thing Joshua said to them on his deathbed is God will drive these people out, meaning they're still here. And, and you could go and look at a map and all the Philistines are still there. Many of the Canaanites, which are on both the east and the west side of the Jordan, are still there. And then the people to the north are still there. And they have not taken the desert of Arabia either. Not much to take there, but you remember the boundary for um, Israel was to be the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River on their side of it would have been very fertile, very rich. It would have been a great place to live. On the other side of it was Babylon. But on their side of it 
good land, which they never, still have never gotten to. They only got there in exile as they were captured by the Babylonians. That's not what God meant when he said, this land is yours. Okay, so we're, we're done with Joshua, and they don't have all the land. They're still, they've, they've got to decide what they're going to do. So you turn the page to the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, um, not sure who wrote it, probably Samuel, because uh, Samuel was the last judge before the people said, we want a king, and then Saul became their king, then David, then Solomon, then the, then the, uh, the nation split into two nations. And we have all that desecration all the way down um, to when ultimately they're taken by Babylon. And we'll get to that, okay? Because that's what Ezekiel says, and that's where we're going. So, and, and we'll do that kind of like we've done Joshua in overview. But if you turn the page and you begin to look at Judges, you say, this sounds very familiar. Because the first two chapters of Judges recount some of the things that happened in Joshua. Matter of fact, if you turn to chapter 2 and verse 6, you'll see this is where Joshua dies. So they're reviewing some of the things. Uh, The land that Caleb took is in here. Um, Joshua, um, the places not conquered are in here. If you look beginning in chapter 1 and verse 27, you'll see all the lands that they, Manasseh did not take possession. You go to the next verse, 28. Um, Sorry, the end of that verse. So the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. Uh, verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Uh, verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants. And, and you go on and on. Uh, verse 31, Asher did not drive out. Verse 32, uh, 33, and Naphtali did not drive out. And so you see all of these people that are still living in the land that was given to them, that they did not drive out. And so kind of a recount of what happened at the end of Joshua. And then Joshua dies, and then verse 11. And you go, you've got to be kidding me, right? You you begin reading in verse 10. All that generation, the generation of Joshua, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which God, he had done for Israel. All right, so the people who came out of Egypt forsook the, the Lord and died in the desert. And then you have their children who go in and are faithful and take the land of Israel that we see taken in Joshua. And then their children are who's talking about here. Okay, this is the third generation coming out of Egypt, and they did not know the Lord. Then you look at verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them so that they provoked the Lord to anger, for they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. So there you go. 
Here's the fulfillment of what God told Joshua in the tent of meeting. That they're going to forsake me and that my anger is going to burn against them. That they're going to serve other gods. And here it is coming true. Now you go, why does God go through all of this? Why did he put the people through all of this? What is going on? And God had a plan all the way through. From the time when he first called Moses to bring the people out of Egypt and he began to speak to him that we'll take the land a little by a little. There's a reason why God did not give the generation of Joshua all the land. And it's in this verse. It's in these verses. You look down at um, verse... Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. I just want to walk through a little bit. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. There you go. It's over. The plan, God says, Nope, I'm not going to drive them out. Not going to happen. Not for these people. Not going to drive, God brings an end to it and he keeps on going in order to test Israel by them whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. There it is in explicit detail, right? God did not give all of the land to Joshua. Why? So that he could test the next generation. You begin reading in chapter 3 and he says it again very, very clearly. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war those who had not experienced it formerly, these are the nations. And then he begins to list the nations that were left for the next generation to drive out that God might test them if they would be faithful. Now Joshua told them, and very clearly, God will drive these nations out. Only do not forsake Him. Do not mix with the people. Do not worship their gods. And that's exactly what we see them doing. So God says, not going to happen. Not going to drive these nations out. And here are all the nations, and they still haven't been driven out to this day. Even when David was king, all these nations were not driven out of the land of Israel. So it's very clear here that regardless of what those statements that Joshua penned, when he says all the land, all the land, that God's been faithful. This is the commentary on what he meant. That God did not drive out all the people and he never intended to in the generation of Joshua. That's why he told them, well, we will drive them out little by little so that he could test this generation. Go ahead. Fifteen hundred 
eschatology that says Israel forsook it. They're not even worth looking at. It's all about the church. Right. You have to go right to what Paul tells one of the most disobedient churches we have. We should be calling. Yeah. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, after he's gone through all of what you just walked us through. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. He says, now these things happen to them as an example, right. but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Isn't it just <laughs> the masterful mind of Satan to put the eschatology of Israel out of the church? So that we would literally ignore this and not realize that God has shaped in Israel what is going to look like the end of the world when he returns. Right. You remember back at the very beginning, first couple of lessons, when we talked about what's the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism. And we said that covenant theology has given up on Israel and believed the church has replaced Israel. That's their eschatology. That's what they believe. All the promises given to Israel are for the church. And I said, that's not what we hold to. We hold to dispensationalism, which means there is a place for the church, but there's also still a plan for Israel. Because God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all this land that explicitly here in Joshua and Judges says they never received. So either God's a liar... Or he's going to do what he said. I believe he's going to do what he said. Well, listen to one of the promises he makes to Israel. Well, we claim, right? He says back in, in Judges 2, verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Right. And that's Israel. And, and very few Israelites today are redeemed. You know, we call them Messianic Jews. Very, very, very small number of those people. And so God, they're the remnant that God's preserving. But there will be a day. And we'll, we'll go to Ezekiel and see this explicitly given that there will be a day when God will fulfill these promises. And he won't depend on anybody to do it. He'll do it himself. Now, for 300 years plus, you have the book of Judges where the nation is in total disarray. I mean, they have a judge. I mean, there, there are seven cycles in the book of Judges where the people forsake God. They have a judge which comes and somewhat organizes them. They repent, they are blessed again, and then they forsake God. And they have a judge who comes and organizes them, and they repent, and they're blessed again. And this goes on seven times in the book of Judges, for 300 and something years. And then the last judge to come is Samuel, who organizes the people, and that's when they get their king Saul and you have the nation somewhat reestablished. And then under David, it's really reestablished. And under Solomon, it's at peace, and they build the temple and all of that. So, but for 300 years now, the Israelites are going to be decimated. 
They're going to be conquered by all the people that they drove out of the lands. They're going to become slaves themselves. Um, It's just going to be total disarray for the next 300 and something years. And so, and then we'll come and we'll look at, um, eventually we'll get to Ezekiel, who comes hundreds of years later and writes about what God promised way back here. And so that's where we're headed. Um, Just take the book of Ezekiel and read it, first to last. And the first 28 chapters are all about prophecy against Jerusalem. And then it jumps to the future about the restoration of the nation of Israel. So we'll, we'll try and walk through that in some detail so we can get a good picture of it. But you see very clearly here in Joshua and Judges what is taught about the land and about did they take it or did they not take it all. And I don't think, I mean, if you're going to argue that they took it all, then you're going to argue against what the scripture says because God makes it very clear they didn't take it all. Go ahead, Dave. So in Galatians 3, is it not clear that the uh, church inherits the promises? Of Israel? Um, we'll talk about that. Okay? Because there's other places too. You could go to Romans. And does it not appear there that the church inherits the promises given to, to Israel? Now, you've got to remember this. To give the promises of Israel to the church does not mean you're still not going to give them to Israel doesn't nullify what you've already promised. And this is often, and this is what we talked about, you know, if, if your covenant theology, you believe the, Old Test, the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament. That's what they believe. And that's what that passage, one of the passages they would use out of Galatians to say, see, that's not what God really meant. But if you're a dispensationalist, what you believe is that the New Testament expands what God said in the Old Testament and gives more clarity to it, which means those promises are still true, but now there are other people included in some of the promises of God. So that's the debate, that's the dividing line, and you have to decide which side you're going to fall on. Or you can stay in the middle and never make a decision. God will not kick you out of the kingdom of heaven because of that. Okay? Thanks for your time. We're done.